Sound like the usual mindless, boring, getting to know you chit chat. Welcome to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 123 of the program happening right now and another great follower Friday type of vibe going down today is welcome to the program. Longtime solar pioneer, a veteran in the industry who I like to say was doing solar way back when before it was the cool thing to do. Mr. Andy Klump, CEO and founder of Clean Energy Associates at CEA, for those of you scoring at home, talking all things solar tariffs. He's based over in China, has been for the last 20 years. Fascinating insight from a gentleman who, from the heartland, like myself and Mr. Niemer, giving us a little insight as to what it's like to do business in China as an American and kind of what the, the feelings are right now. But before we get to Mr. Klump, let's hear from our CEO and co-founder, Mr. Mike Niemer, telling you what it is we do here at eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know going green is important to your business and your ESG rating. Besides offering PPAs and VPPAs, through our network of clean energy professionals, we can also offer renewable natural gas, or let us help you lower your carbon footprint with responsibly sourced gas from a leading global energy provider. Maybe you need green energy credits, whether it's unbundled RECs or RSG certificates. Your path to net zero and decarbonization is one step closer with the renewable. For more assistance, please call us at one 866 one Thank you so much for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. You can get all the information about the company over at eRenewable.com. And, of course, because it's a follower Friday, give us a follow on our LinkedIn page. Like us over there. Follow us. And then you, too, can be a member of the Follower Friday series here on the podcast. You will be glad that you did. All right, let's get right down to Mr. Andy Klump, 20-year veteran of the solar industry. Been over in China for that time as well. Got his business over there. Wife and four beautiful daughters. We'll hear from him in just a little bit. Talking all things, what is the investigation that's going on right now into Southeast Asia as far as solar panels are concerned? I know there's a lot of concern here in the United States, and rightfully so, considering the number of panels and the percentage of panels that we get from Southeast Asia. Congress is investigating that right now. We're going to ask Andy exactly what does that mean to both his business as well as to the solar industry as a whole. We're going to get into what are tensions and feelings like right now between the United States and China. We know we hear the the Western point of view. How does it feel to be a boot on the ground over in China? What does the energy transition mean to China? And then, of course, we'll ask him what is on the docket for CEA, Mr. Andy Klump, and the solar industry for the rest of 2022. Without further ado, here is Mr. Andy Klump. My 20 years in China, I definitely will say it's it's a more tense point right now than it has been in the past. There are a ton of, of folks and ways where I'd say it, you, you really don't, doesn't matter from an American businessman perspective, because, you know, once again, whatever you do in China, I'd say Chinese don't have angst against individual Americans. There's a lot of like kind of macro government related topics that they don't really participate in. So I'll say to do business in China, you need to have knowledge of the, of the language. I think it's absolutely a requirement. I think versus where I was 20 years ago, language wasn't as crucial. But when I first went to China, I realized I am committing myself to learning the language. So that's absolutely essential. The second piece is that is culture, really knowing how the Chinese think and operate, I think is extremely important. And then third is really having a value proposition that, that resonates and works in China. If you can nail those three things, I think, you know, anyone can go and, and do business in China. 
but it does take a lot to really understand number two. As tough as you might think it is to learn Mandarin, and that took me two plus years, um, that was not the biggest obstacle. Really understanding the mindset of the Chinese and understanding how they think and operate, that is extremely important. And I think that um, that's a, a skill that you could take anywhere because the Chinese diaspora is many different parts of the world. But the, to the third point, as I was uh, was saying, having a value proposition that really resonates and doing something that's different, that's one of the reasons that uh, I've been fortunate to be successful. But to the broader question about geopolitics, I mean, it is, it's obviously, it's a very di different system, very different culture. Uh, China is much more capitalistic than what folks realize. They think of communism, and it is not the, the communism of uh, 30 or 40 years ago in the Cold War. That is not the case whatsoever. Uh, you know, Chinese uh, leaders are very innovative. Uh, yeah, I'd say one of the things that's interesting, if you look at the political systems, a lot of U.S. politicians have a legal or political science type background. All the Chinese politicians are either scientists or engineers. So they know how to build things. So infrastructure is very, very strong in China, and they've uh, built out incredible infrastructure throughout the whole, uh, whole, you know, whole their whole uh, country. But you know, I'd say once again, things are a bit more tense. And so I think at the macro level, what's happening between you know China and the U.S., you know, both sides realize they're they're looking at things a little differently. So it uh, it does create for interesting uh, interesting dynamics at times. You mentioned the, the the second part being understanding the culture and and kind of getting into the mind of of how they operate and what have you and and the way biz Chinese business folks operate. How is that different than than how we do things here in the United States? Or what is the biggest things you've noticed in in your uh, your time there? Yeah, I think it, within China, I think there's there's definitely a sense uh, of how are things how do things work collectively as a whole as opposed to a typical American approach of, hey, I want to be the, the individual that stands out. I want to do something the best and create a different path. Forging a different path is not always the, the best way to operate in China. And to give a perspective, you know, I first showed up in, in 2003 working for Dell Computer. And so I was just trying to think out of the box what are ways I could grow my sales team and, or grow my sales. And so I was, I was trying to figure out, okay, how do I build a network? How do I connect with others? And... And their, um, the counsel that one of the sales guys told me was, don't rock the boat. Don't do something that we've not done before. It's better to just follow the protocol, 20 meetings a week. Just go set up the, the right meetings. Just follow, your, follow what you can and just you know, keep, keep the peace. Whereas I was thinking, hey, I'm a foreigner in China. I've, got a, I've never had a sales quota before. I need to find ways to, to do this. So I said, maybe I find ways to connect to the American Chamber of Commerce. I try to connect with you know, a senior level executive in, in the Siemens, which is one of my accounts, I said, let me try to find something through the German chamber and, and make a connection that way. And what ended up happening is there was a rumor that I was, you know, I was posturing myself as the head of Dell China. And that's why I met with some certain business unit leads through the German Chamber of Commerce, through some kind of joint AmCham event, American Chamber of Commerce event. And then uh, it ended up like that, uh, that rumor uh, that I did that, that, that was kind of a nail in the coffin. It made it very, very tough for me to recover because it made it look like I was going above my superiors. The truth was never, you know, was obviously not that. I passed on my, my business card that said business development manager. And that's what I was. But I made those contacts, was able to bring in some business in different ways than what would typically would have been done. But I think in that, that cultural context, I was never a great fit. And I'll, I'll tell you, it was not, it was not my, my career job was to sell commodity products to Chinese, but I learned a lot. I took the job because I wanted to learn the language. 
but more importantly, learn the culture. And so I guess my the key takeaway for me over time is you know, definitely respect the chain of command, respect that there is a certain harmony um, in terms of how you do business and really respect relationships. And it's better to work through relationships just to try to get to someone as opposed to necessarily trying to stand out. So, uh, and I see that in the education system as well. What's kind of the function of having four daughters is I, I interact with the schools a fair amount and I see the Western education system and the Chinese education system having different principles in place. So it, uh, it makes for some interesting stories. And then I know, you know, your foray into the, to the solar side of things and you work with a company, uh, what Trina solar, if I'm not mistaken. And you, you started with the founder of Trina, if I'm, if from, from what I believe I heard on the podcast and you kind of, you know, became his right hand man. How much did learning from him kind of propel you and give you kind of like that, you know, take what you already knew from, you know, going, going alone at it and, and learning the hard way and then being his right hand man and then getting kind of that, you know, uh, rapid fire influx into the culture. Yeah, so it, uh, when I joined Trina in 2006, yeah, I, I directly reported to uh, Mr. Jifan Gao, uh, who is the CEO and founder of, uh, of Trina Solar. And, and Mr. Gao is a fantastic individual. At the time I met him in 2006, he didn't know any English. Uh, I, my, my Mandarin was, you know, after three years, was, was decent. I was, I was functionally fluent from a business standpoint, but I never was ever, uh, never tested myself or had a proper translation certificate. But I, I did a lot of translation for him as we traveled internationally. But I saw the classic China entrepreneur, hard charging, you know, the desire to win and be number one, uh, the desire to have an impact. I, I fully respected his vision and perspective. And I would say how he championed resources and built uh, you know, Trina to be a, such an amazing company. I was super, super impressed, but he was very open and very Western in his ideas, even though he didn't speak any uh, any English and he never lived in the U.S., he definitely embraced a lot of Western ideals about uh, collaboration and bringing different folks on. But I, I will definitely say I learned a lot about how uh, hardworking the Chinese are, how committed they are to the cause and how uh, how passionate they are. So once again, a lot of uh, similarities with, you know, with many you know, Western or, or U.S. Uh, entrepreneurs. But I will definitely say one of my key takeaways was let's get take my first uh, point to the second is there's also a process about how you how you uh, you know you build aggressively within harmony. But what I was able to do at Trina, which was very unique, is that I was able to take all my knowledge, you know, education and background from the West, apply it within uh, the framework of uh, of their organization, but really help Trina become much more international. And so that's where uh, Trina effectively went through a 10x growth in those two years I was there from 500 employees to roughly 5,000. I was on the IPO deal team that listed the company in the New York Stock Exchange. There's a long process of dealing with investors and communicating the value proposition and also joining, uh, jointly participating on earnings calls and a lot of other uh, industry forums. But I, I learned a tremendous amount of Mr. Gowd. I have a ton of respect for him, but I, I definitely learned about the, the context of how quickly the Chinese mobilized. And I'd say... That's something I carried into my business at CEA was just understanding the supply chain. And a lot of people thought, oh, well, the Chinese just got the advantage of the solar industry because of low, low cost of labor. That's not it at all. Labor was you know, less than 2% of the cost of uh, your typical solar module. But it's they created a supply chain infrastructure and plan around how do you build a vision? How do you get suppliers, subcomponent suppliers to buy in your vision? How did, and, and you really can help you convince those suppliers to co-locate next to Trina's facilities. So part of my role as vice president of business development was creating 
the Changzhou supplier co-location program. So I learned a ton about the supply chain, how to get those suppliers, uh, subcomponent suppliers all aligned with that vision and then to do it rapidly. Uh, in China, the, the, just the speed of business is at such a different pace. Uh, those are some of the key takeaways I had from that, uh, that experience at Trina. So the first thing that jumps to my mind when you're telling me this is, what was that conversation like, uh, Mr. Gao, you said? Yes, correct. What was that conversation like with him when you decided you were going to leave Trina and start your own company? At the time, he refused to accept my resignation. He said, look, Andy, you've been here two years. I passed a piece of paper over to him. He said, I'm not taking this. I pushed it back, and he, he refused to take it. And I, I went for a, an hour trying to convince him to let me leave, and he still said no. And he said, I want you to go back. I want you to tell me exactly what you want. We can help make uh, we can make some, uh, you know, some changes. My fundamental issue, uh, I had the good fortune to have um, met my wife uh, when I was in Beijing uh, prior to, to, to moving to Shanghai. Uh, in 2006, I then started at Trina Solar, but I wisely uh, proposed to her right before I started. And so uh, we had our, our wedding on the, in 2007 after year one of the company. But after two years, it was clear I either had to relocate to this factory town uh, because he had promised me that they were going to set up their headquarters in Shanghai. That was going to be the center of decision making. But all the decisions were where he was in Changzhou, two and a half hours away. And I just said, I just can't be commuting Monday through Friday uh, ad nauseum and then still traveling internationally. So I was away from my wife 90% of the time. So he was willing to make a lot of exceptions, change a lot of things. They set up a Shanghai office, uh, but it was about a month process for him to finally accept my resignation. And, uh, and then I set up CA because I, I respected the work he did at Trina and I had a non-compete. I chose to honor that. And so I said, if I'm, if I'm not going to work for any other manufacturer, which I had many other manufacturers that wanted to hire me, and I met a lot of C-level executives over the course of uh, my two years at Trina. Uh, they all gave offers for me to join their companies because I was bilingual. I had knowledge in the solar sector, which 2008 was still fairly early on. But I said, I don't want to work for a competitor and do the same thing. I want to forge my own path. And I'd rather find ways where I could work with many of the, the Trina clients who I met in different markets and said, I want to help add value and really, you know, help them in different ways where where the business actually ended up was very dramatically different than what i thought in 2008 but that's a separate story but uh i absolutely was uh was very committed to uh setting my own path and uh trying to you know trying the 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 path of an entrepreneur in 2008 what was that reception like from the rest of your uh cohorts here's a you know as i've heard you say before big tall white dude from uh, st louis missouri here in uh you know china speaks the language you know, working with a, a guy very well respected in the Chinese business world. What was that like when you made that jump to CEA, and what were those first couple of years like? Uh, well, I'll say it was uh, it was a it was a dramatic shock uh, to all of a sudden be on my own and just rely on my own skills uh, and expertise rather than being paid. I, I never never set up a company before officially, so I was a first time entrepreneur. And with the uh, the exception of what I did in high school, which is set up a landscaping business, just that was just to pay for my high school tuition. So I, I did that for seven years, but uh, that was kind of more of a, a side um, side passion than anything else. But look, when I when I set up CA, it was absolutely a, a massive struggle because the global financial crisis had just happened. So I literally set out stepped out of of CA in two thousand eight with the intention of setting a business around you know, doing high level kind of, you know, corporate strategy related to solar and doing corporate development and, and trying to help put different deals together. I was going to have different ideas about polysilicon, what I was going to do. And the reality was 
the financial crisis just hit in a massive way. The subsidies in Spain uh, just came off. The uh, pricing in the industry was in a free fall. Everything was completely chaotic. And so I just had to say, I'm putting all those kind of consulting plans aside. Let me figure out how, how, do, I, uh, how do I make money? I had this great business plan all drafted and I just had to scrap it in day one. And I, I just was responding to what you know, c- customers' concerns were, which at the end of the day, folks were really, all, they were all asking questions about supply chain. So I said, well, look, I thought the supply chain piece was the easy part and it, it was something everyone could figure out, but I realized that's the part that's really challenging. So I really established CA at the start with something completely different in mind, but I quickly pivoted in late 2008 to just focus on supply chain and then quality assurance, because that was the second piece of it. I was helping companies to draft contracts, make introductions to suppliers, but these are Western companies that didn't have someone on the ground in China to really act as uh, in their best interest and in making sure the contracts were executed. We found the contracts were often, you know, the volume was then shifted the next day after a contract was signed without the ink even being dry because the supplier got a different price somewhere else and that was more palatable. And I said, well, let me make sure that these contracts get executed. And then as I went to the factories to make sure that it happened, that I saw the dramatic difference in factory level quality between many of these different manufacturers. And I said, I need to hire an engineer or two to come with me to really get in the, in the details. And so uh, from those two practices of supply chain and quality assurance in 2008, then we later expanded the business because I had clients who said, hey, I also want to hear about, uh, you know, can you help me assess product quality after the product arrives at the, at the port or at the job site? And so we set up a separate team completing engineering services work. Uh, we established a U.S. entity later in 2013 and had folks on the ground and really kind of built and scaled our business there. And then the fourth business unit we have is a market intelligence team. So we effectively uh, now have over 135 gigawatts worth of client projects and engagement. So we gathered the data from all those uh, those projects and put it in a way that folks can digest it. They can understand different defect level data that we've seen in the in the in the in the factories, and then we can actually help uh, use that data information to help them complete the project better. So um, that's where we've, our business has grown and evolved. Yeah. So with COVID and the supply chain disruption, there's a lot of interesting dynamics that are happening right now. It's very clear that, you know, once again, when I set up the business in 2006, the solar supply chain was, um, was, was still very early stage, but the, the current case, I will say, I've never seen such a, so many different factors coming at once. It's not just the the logistics issues which have plagued the industry we've also seen a, a massive spike in demand for the upstream polysilicon that led to a massive price increase of roughly 3x uh, in early 2021 uh, so we've seen some a bit of volatility as that's bumped around but pricing still remains very high and challenged we also have seen uh this recent case of uh, of regulatory issues and so the recent tariffs in the ADCBD are causing a headache because they're focusing on a lot of the, the major markets in Southeast Asia where production happens in Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Thailand. And so there's a lot of, uh, of, of stress that we get from uh, a lot of requests from different downstream developers, IPPs, EPCs, and the like. As they face these various challenges, uh, we've seen a lot of, uh, of folks wondering how, how do they get their access on, on supply that is cost-effective? And the reality is with a lot of these inflationary pressures and just regulatory hurdles, your pricing is increasing because of uh, all the uncertainty. And that's that's caused some to pause and, and it's created a challenging dynamic in the industry. 
Is it harder to get information, you know, when folks are working back and forth or, you know, to get, I guess, good, solid information? You haven't been on the ground for so long. I find it hard to believe that there's anybody as plugged in when it comes to what's going on solar production-wise in China than Mr. Andy Klum. We have a much bigger team these days than we did at the time when I just started. So while in 2008, it was myself executing a lot of this work and connecting with various folks, we now have a 200-person team. And so we have uh, 95 folks on the ground in, uh, in China who are executing work. They're often traveling to different countries and completing work as, uh, as needed in different manufacturing facilities. 200 folks globally and 95 folks that are in China, but we have separate teams focused on supply chain and market intelligence. So I would say getting the information isn't the challenge. I think the challenge is really converting the information that we have to making a, making actionable deals. That's the that's the biggest challenge. Is really how do you uh, how do you amidst all this market uncertainty convince various stakeholders to take uh, either the risk or you know deal with some of this uh, regulatory uncertainty? That's what's caused a number of contracts to pause and uh, and make it very uh, very difficult. So that's uh, that's more or less the, the major challenge we're facing right now. So when you hear about this investigation that is going on right now here in the United States, um, that I guess they, they initiated a one, you know, potentially a one year investigation. Uh, Congress has stepped in it. And of course, we all know getting anything bipartisan wise is, is an act of God. But hey, you got both sides coming together and saying, look, we need to hurry this thing up if we're going to get this thing done so that we don't, you know, totally peter out the uh, solar industry. What's kind of the feeling over there in China or, or on your end uh, when you hear about this investigation and just what it means? Because, again, since you got boots on the ground on both sides, what does this mean to the solar industry in China? So first of all, uh, the world needs more solar. I mean, we all know there's such a high demand for renewables. And it's not just solar. It's also solar plus energy storage. So I'm 100% confident that the market will continue to grow and expand over time. And so uh, full stop, I think that is something that both China and the U.S. can agree that there is a high need for you know, clean, affordable uh, renewable energy that that helps uh, you know, helps power the planet. So that uh, that trend is absolutely happening. So the the investigation absolutely creates uncertainty and it, and it makes it difficult for developers or financiers to to back and uh, deploy projects when all of a sudden one's not certain if they're going to have a a ten percent tariff or it could be as high as two hundred fifty percent at the higher end of the threshold. So that completely destroys project economics if that were to happen. What is happening is that everyone is now asking us, how do we buy modules that are no longer subject to the ADCVD and in these four countries? And that's where you know, CA does have a global network of suppliers that we work with. We have worked with many companies uh, that are leading IPPs and developers you know, throughout, uh, you know, throughout the U.S. that you know, they rely on us not just for our quality uh, checks, but also a lot of the supply chain insights we have. So that's where we've helped folks to understand who are the different manufacturers outside of those four countries. And so we're really trying to help our clients you know, get their supply needs, but certainly some projects are gonna be delayed. Uh, and 2022 projects are some postponed to 2023 or 2024. And so I don't see the, the market demand going away, but I do see there being a push out of some of the projects that are in the pipeline. Are there enough other countries that have the resources, the capabilities to pick up the slack now that we know that there's this worldwide demand for more solar? 
there is absolutely a supply chain in other regions, but it's not as robust as what it is in Southeast Asia. So this is um, this is going to take some time. But if you look at what's happening, I'll just take India as an example. You look at India, they put tariffs on Chinese panels as well, and they're actually fostering a domestic Indian market. So there's actually over 50 gigawatts of announced capacity of projects, or I'm sorry, 50 gigawatts of, of actual manufacturing capacity uh, on some of the modules that have been announced. We know that all of that's going to come to market, but even if half of it doesn't, 25 gigawatts is a lot of solar. And the U.S. market being what it is, I think you're going to see many different buyers shifting their attention to, uh, you know, to acquiring products from India. We've had teams on the ground there since yeah, 2015, uh, a 15-person team on the ground off doing completing inspections and doing work on behalf of our, our buyers. We have others, supply chain team and account management side that are supporting our clients. And we actually have just two U.S. clients in India this week. So uh, there are other regions that have uh, some manufacturing capacity outside of that. But once again, the, the fact of the matter is over 80% of the, the modules did come from the four countries in question. So that is, um, that's really a big challenge and question for the industry right now. What does the energy transition look like in China? So China is absolutely committed to growing and expanding its renewable energy deployments. And if you look at the solar amount of solar that's been deployed in China last year in 2021 was a record high. And China is the world's largest manufacturing hub, but it's also the world's largest uh, in terms of end installations and demand. And so there's a tremendous support for renewables. And it's not just solar, it's also wind. And energy storage is picking up in other areas like green hydrogen and an overall uh, build out of, of a sustainable energy transition technologies. China's fully supportive of that. So I think, when, but on the flip side, the China energy demand is massive. And once again, there's still a lot of coal plants, it's still been traditionally, you know, over 50% of, of China's energy came from coal. It was as high as 70 or 80 percent at one point, but they are diversifying more towards renewables. So I think they're very committed. And they've also stated their goal is 2060, reaching carbon neutrality. Well, that's several decades away. They also have a track record of actually hitting their goals. Mm -hmm. So they're, they are very committed to the energy transition. And that's why I think, once again, that is actually a, a commonality between the U.S. and China, is that both countries do want to deploy more, a lot more renewables. And so hopefully there's a tighter collaboration and work together in the future. We'll get you out here with this. You've been a solar pioneer from back before it was the cool thing to do. Tall white guy working in China and boots on the ground down there doing a tremendous job running a company from Shanghai. What's, uh, what's on the docket for the rest of 2022 for Andy Klump and CEA? Well, CEA is absolutely going to continue to grow and expand. We've uh, been on a clip of, uh, of high growth. We were at 60 plus percent growth pre-COVID for several years in a row and then it's got uh, went a little sideways that year, but we have a very strong company culture and are very dynamic in terms of how we approach the market. We're looking for the right culture fit, but we have a strong team of experts and we're going to continue to grow both geographically as well as in terms of our uh, the number of services that we offer. And we're also going to continue to, you know, to help our clients expand in whatever uh, needs that they have. So that's where we do have a 65-person team in the U.S., we have mostly engineers and we're helping to support our clients with solar and storage solutions in, in many different states in the U.S., but just also countries globally. So you know, just one example is we have a strong engineering services team 
that is actually complete a lot of rooftop inspections. So we've actually had inspections for uh, several hundred rooftops for two of the top Fortune 10 companies. And so one of the things I think it's an interesting thread uh, is that the demand for uh, solar and, and energy storage have been very strong among corporates. And so we see a lot of our clients shift towards the corporate segment. And once again, as there's been more solar deployed, there's also a lot more quality problems. And so a lot of what our team has done is we've responded to a lot of uh, of, of thermal events. So once again, everyone hates the thought of a fire on a, on a rooftop, but it does happen. And if you have poor workmanship or poor product quality, this can happen. So part of our teams are just off executing uh, inspections, both in the field and large utility scale installations, as well as on on uh, CNI rooftops, and that commercial industrial segment is growing and expanding. We also have residential clients that uh, that we we work with through our large platforms. But once again, we're helping to continue to grow and enable more solar and storage development. So we're very excited uh, about the future and want to go back to that that high growth uh, that we've had in the past. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Andy Klump. You can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and on the website, eRenewable.com. Check them out. You will be glad that you did. Shout out, as always, to the entire eRenewable team and Mike, Roger, Al. Thank you guys all so much for doing what you do. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. Green Insider.